good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Alps in Brief. My name is Chris Newbold, uh, Executive Vice President of Alps, uh, standing in for Mark Bassingthwaite in a, uh, for a podcast uh, around uh, an issue that's growing in importance, particularly out west, which is uh, the, the um, requiring lawyers to have malpractice uh, insurance. And so um, today I'm joined by Diane Minnick, who's the Executive Director of the, uh, the Idaho State Bar, and Idaho uh, recently became the second uh, state in the country to require ma malpractice insurance for private practitioners as a condition of licensure. So, uh, Diane, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. So let, let's just maybe talk about just kind of how the, the concept in Idaho got started. Um, you know, what, what was the mechanism that, that triggered the discussion, and, and, uh, and when, when did it take place? Um, any rule change that um, is proposed in Idaho has to be taken to the Idaho State Bar membership for a vote. And so in this particular case, um, our president at the time thought that requiring malpractice insurance of attorneys was the right thing to do. Um, she had done some defense work and, and felt like sometimes the uh, clients were not being served well by those lawyers who threatened to file bankruptcy if they didn't. Um, if you filed a malpractice claim against them. So she submitted that uh, issue to our membership in 2016, um, and we went every, we go around the state and visit with all the lawyers. They all have an opportunity to vote. We talked with them. Um, we had, you know, the people who were concerned and people who were supportive, um, and it passed by the membership. And once that happened, then we submit that proposed rule to the Supreme Court, and they adopted it in 2017. Um, in 2018 licensing, which is this year, was the first year that it was implemented for all lawyers that were represented by private clients in Idaho. Okay. Now, the, the other state that that went uh, that requires malpractice insurance is Oregon, and I think your model is a little bit different than the Oregon model. Talk to us about what model you adopted and why. Um, the model we have is just basically open market that every lawyer is, that represents private clients is required to obtain malpractice insurance in a 300 uh, 100, 300 are the limits, and um, we've looked at the Oregon model in the past, and, and I think our population of lawyers is just not large enough to support that particular model, and so we determined that to try it out in the, you know, let everybody try to find the insurance themselves and determine what they want to pay and who they want to go, who they want as their carrier was the best approach for us given our size. Okay, and so you so you required it of, of your lawyers to go into the open market, and um, was everybody who uh, was required to get insurance, were they able to secure insurance? As far as we know, everyone that was required under the rule to obtain insurance has done so. Um, we had some that it took some time to do so. Um, there were some concerns about cost, and so some people weren't said they couldn't get it, and their real issue was the cost. Um, we've learned since then there have been a few lawyers who didn't re-up their licensing because they um, didn't have insurance. and, and we're going to encourage them to go ahead and do the licensing, and then we'll work with them on insurance. And I think there was a group of lawyers who were on the verge of retirement who, having to obtain insurance at, that, at this point in their career, made a choice to not continue to practice. And most of those that made that choice were close to retirement anyway, and it sort of was the, the thing that pushed them over that to make that final decision, which is, okay, I didn't really, I'm getting ready to retire, now I'm going to do so. Mm -hmm. And how many lawyers in Idaho, how many lawyers in, in Idaho are there, and how many are kind of required to abide by the 
by the, by the new rule? Our total membership is about 6,500. Active members is 4,000. And I think we determined that lawyers subject to the rule was in the 3,000 range, a little mm -hmm. over 3,000. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so again, you, you were the first one in the country to kind of really go down the road of an open market model. And uh, so how, you know, upon reflection, now that you, you went through one cycle, right? Yep. Getting ready to go out into an, a second uh, year of a, of a cycle, but um, just your general impressions of, of how you felt like it went and, and uh, the kind of the response from, uh, from the membership. Um, we think it went relatively well. Um, everyone, like I said, who was required did obtain insurance. Um, the questions we had were legitimate ones. Um, if, you know, we get a few calls from people that just are opposed to the concept. Um, but, but many of the questions were house counsel, I'm a corporate counsel, how do I fit into the mix? Part-time practice is a big issue. I'm only going to practice part-time. Do I need insurance, pro bono? Um, those things I think we were able to deal with, and those were the, where most of the questions came from mm -hmm. lawyers in terms of just trying to understand. A rule is very simple, doesn't have any exceptions, doesn't um, have a lot of pieces and moving parts. So in some ways that's good because it allowed us some flexibility to make decisions about how we handle certain issues. This year we revised uh, the form some. We're ready to answer questions. We revised the uh, FAQ to be a little bit more um, in line with the questions that were asked. So mm -hmm. I think we're, we're ready to go. And, and, and law the lawyers were really, even those that are opposed to the concept, were very respectful and professional about it. And once you explain to them how it works, most of them were very like thank thankful, thank you for answering my question, and yeah. went off and yeah. found insurance. And do you know the number of uninsured lawyers that you generally had in Idaho before the rule was enacted? Uh, our best guess, we had uh, mandatory disclosure of whether or not you had insurance prior to this and have had it for a while, 10, 12 years. Um, and so we figured in the range between 15 to 20 percent, it's hard to tell because our records were, um, you have to pull out public attorneys out of the requirement of malpractice. So you, you had to manipulate those statistics to try to figure out who really should have it and shouldn't. But I'm thinking 15 to 20 percent of the lawyers who are now required to have it were not, did not have it prior to this time. And do you think a, a, a majority of those were probably more private or solo attorneys versus those in firms? Or? Most of them are smaller, either solo or small practices, yes. Yeah. And what, I mean, one of the things that, that sometimes people uh, who don't have malpractice insurance that are coming into the market, obviously a big question is price, right? And so do you, any, any reflections on, on the, the, the price point in which people you know, ultimately had to pay to come into the, come into the market? Um, we asked lawyers when they, um, they, have to they have to submit proof that they have insurance, so a deck page or a letter from the insurance company. We asked them to redact their premium amount, and many did, many did not. So we have a general idea. And I talked to a lot of people on the phone, I mean, anecdotally. Um, from a part-time practice, you know, it started anywhere from 500 up. Mm -hmm. I think of, of when I did sort of a random uh, look at what people had, um, it appears that in the two to $3,000 range is probably where most of it, if, on a sole practice, I mean, a person, you know, um, per person yeah. was probably the average. Um, okay. Yeah, I guess I know that um, obviously we have, we enjoy a relationship with the Idaho State Bar in terms of your endorsed carrier. and. You know, oftentimes those coming into the marketplace without any insurance 
are coming in without any kind of exposure right. you know, in terms of their, uh, their, their entry point into the market, which oftentimes enables them to get a credit, which pushes the price down at least early on in their career, and then as they gain more exposure, then the price ultimately goes up. Yeah, and I think that's the question we're going to have this year, yeah. um, is the price is going to go up for a lot of the people that got it for the first time, and you know, just being able to answer that question, letting them understand what, that they have a, the prior acts has to be there as part of the policy. Yeah. So those, I think, are going to be um, what we're going to deal with in terms of questions from lawyers this year. Is mm -hmm. um, everyone has it, and one would assume they can go ahead and you know just re re up their insurance, and we'll just, just the price is probably still going to become an issue. Yeah. Now, the Idaho State Bar is a regulatory entity, yes? Yes. Um, and so, you know, as you think about the, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious on, um, you know, how you see this particular rule falling into your regulatory authority and, and ultimately what was, what, what was the rule enacted to, to protect or prevent? I, I think the, a couple things. One is, the bottom line is it does protect the public in terms of the clients who have lawyers and if something happens that falls into the arena of a malpractice um, claim that they have an option in terms of to do something about that. I also think in general if you talk to people they assume lawyers do have insurance. It's interesting how many people I've said it to that were not lawyers that said oh I thought everyone did and so I think part of that is just a perception that that's something that is the right thing to do and that lawyers like other professions do and for the most part in this country they don't so um, and I think it protects lawyers too at some level you know if a lawyer has a, a client who's going to file a claim they have some coverage too in case that is not legitimate um, or they need help or even if they did do something wrong it can be fixed um, because sometimes lawyers make mistakes yeah and that then that can be covered for them yeah well, good. As you know, there are other states around the country that are also kind of taking a look at enacting mandatory malpractice. You know, Nevada was looking at it, Washington's looking at it, California's looking at it. Any any advice or counsel to those other bars that might think that this is you know the right uh, type of uh, rule that would you know protect the public and and be important in terms of you know preserving confidence in the legal system. I mean, I think all of those things are true. Um, I think from a bar's perspective, um, it's the right thing to do. Um, it, it's doable, whether you want to go with an Oregon model or our model. Um, but it's a lot of work. I mean, I think from an administrative standpoint, if you're a bar, and you, especially a larger one than we are, the amount of time and effort it's going to take to implement something like this is something you have to take into consideration, that you also, these things don't just happen, um, and you want to do it right, and we, my, one of my lawyers and I, we answered all the questions ourselves because we wanted lawyers to know we're listening to you, we're going to try to solve your problem, we're going to try to figure out how you fit into the rule so that, and we can do that in a small state, you know, mm -hmm. be able to have that personal customer service so that they're feeling like, yeah, we have to do this, but they're listening to me and helping me get to the place that I need to be in terms of obtaining insurance. Yeah. One final question, as, you, as, you, as the court enacted the rule, you obviously then had a period where I think you did a, you, you tried to do a significant amount of education, right, mm -hmm. before, right. Uh, because this, this is all part of the annual dues. License fees. License fees. Um, and well, so it's part of licensing requirements, obviously. They don't pay anything yeah. to us. But so, yes. so talk to us about just kind of what you did uh, in, in that lead-up period, because I think that will be important for others well, thinking we, about We it. used all of our 
communication avenues, our magazine, I have an article, we have a weekly e-bulletin, and we wrote letters directly to everyone that we could determine should have it and didn't. Like we could figure out through our database and who said, you know, I don't have insurance through the uh, mandatory disclosure, and we sent personalized letters to each of those people. Said, okay, here's mm -hmm. the deal, here's what's gonna happen next, from our records, you indicate you don't have it, so that they knew ahead of time, like six months out, that that's what was going to happen next. Okay. Well, good, Diane. Any anything else that you'd like to add before we before we wrap this podcast up? I don't think so. I think it went. Um, I mean, I, I it think went I, more smoothly than I anticipated yeah. it, and I'm just going to be interested to see how year two goes. Yeah, I mean, if a couple of adjectives that you threw out there was you know doable, somewhat smooth. Um, you know, not a lot of negative member feedback. Obviously, some people weren't thrilled to have to kind of uh, be subject to, to the new rule, but, um, but it, it seemed, to, uh, seemed to go well for Idaho. Yes, it did. Well, good. Well, thank you, Diane. I appreciate your time today, and I appreciate the, the audience for listening in. If you have any other ideas for upcoming ALPS podcasts, feel free to, uh, to let us know. Uh, thanks, and goodbye. <laughs>